Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thanks for subscribing, downloading, rating, letting people know about the podcast. We really do appreciate it. Thank you for getting in touch with your comments and criticisms and complaints. Uh, we get to those at the end of the podcast. But if you'd like to submit a new one based on this show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can tweet us, we're at Newstalk Science 2. Coming up in this episode, we're going to be talking about the raging debate in plant science, which is, can plants be intelligent? 95% of the scientists say no, but there is 5% of the scientists that are starting to consider this idea of neuroplant consciousness stuff. We'll hear from one of those researchers who's considering this question in a few minutes. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Jessamine Fairfield from NUI Galway and from UCD, Dr. Shane Bergen. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Shane, is about making oxygen on Mars. It does. And we know that oxygen is important because it keeps us alive. And um, you, you can make it, it turns out, uh, by splitting carbon dioxide. So you take a carbon dioxide molecule and you put it through a solid oxide electrolyzer um, and you can split it into carbon and oxygen. And that oxygen is useful. You can mix it in with other things and breathe it or you can use it as a fuel. And that's what's happened on Mars. So a little box the size of, of a lunchbox is now producing six grams an hour. And it's a kind of proof of principle as part of the Perseverance mission. And of course, this is all in preparation for sending a Mars uh, human mission to Mars. And we'd, we'd need to breathe air and we'd need to get home. So that's where the oxygen will come in. Um, I, so Mars does have an atmosphere. Um, I, I kind of have to constantly remind myself of that. It's a very thin atmosphere and it is rich in carbon dioxide so there's lots of carbon dioxide there as a fuel and uh, the the solid oxide electrolyzer it's kind of given the name moxie which is much better um it it is solar powered and they've shown in this paper um published from mit that it can operate in almost every light condition so in other words um like when, when the sun's up this thing is is able to churn out the oxygen so it's fantastic uh, we would have to send a much bigger machine to mars if we wanted to produce oxygen in any sort of a meaningful quantity um, yeah, i was going to ask moment. i mean i have as you know quite an athletic build and um <laughs> i was wondering how much would how many gulps of air would 6 grams get me well I, I actually couldn't figure this out, but I know that we we uh, we breathe about 10,000 litres of air a day. But air, of course, is 21% oxygen. So you'd have to figure out, ah, God almighty, my physical chemistry isn't up to it. But um, this is producing about the same amount of oxygen as a small tree. Uh, okay. So like that, that's pretty good, right, for a small device. Um, of course, the, the first thing I did was um, Google, can a solid oxide electrolyzer be used on Earth to transform carbon dioxide into other things? And, and it can. It's just that it's very energy demanding. So mm. we need a lot of, of energy in order to run this electrochemical um, uh, reaction for us to, to, for it to be ma uh, made useful. Not going to solve climate change. But, no, but it could um, it could make carbon dioxide a very useful source for 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 uh, other uh, things so chemists are very interested in capturing carbon dioxide and using the carbon within to make plastics etc 
I know your grasp of human anatomy is really senior infants level but um, in terms of the quality of air that we breathe obviously we have air with this nitrogen this other I mean nitrogen we don't use but there are other things in air can we breathe just pure oxygen healthily for long periods of time without the other things that we breathe in with our lungs uh, never trust a physicist when they're giving you biological advice, but uh, I know that we can breathe pure oxygen because occasionally they give it to us in hospitals, but I also know that it's something you shouldn't do for long. So we should probably ask Lara that the next time she's on the program. <laughs> <laughs> Excellently dodged. Uh, Jess, our second story uh, has to do with why some couples struggle to conceive with the discovery of a new protein. That's right. So the Czech Center for Phenogenomics have just put out a paper discovering a protein that's very important for sperm egg binding that wasn't known about before. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about this study is actually the way that they did it. So there have been two proteins identified previously that are important in this binding, um, one called Izumo, which was discovered in 2005, and one called Juno that was discovered in 2014. And for both of those studies, what they had to do was basically take a large number of donated eggs, you know, donated sperm, look for where those kind of bindings were taking place and try to figure out how to detect them. Uh, what these researchers have done instead is use something called a combinatorial peptide library, where they basically took 13 million little bits of protein, these peptides, they attached them to microbeads that were the same size as a human egg, about like 0.1 millimeters uh, in diameter. And then they just release human sperm and they look for where it, it attaches to these hmm. little fake eggs. Wow. And one of the things that I find really funny about this is they can see where it's attached because the sperm attaching to the egg makes the fake uh, little beads spin around. So they just look for like where there's these spinning beads in the array. And <laughs> that's basically where binding has occurred. But doing it this way, this very like thorough way of looking at many, 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 you know, 13 million different peptides, um, they found a new one, which they've called Juno, which is actually part of, uh, or sorry, Maya, which is part of the binding process. So basically, when these uh, initially known proteins, Juno and Azumo, bind to each other, um, that is the initial sperm egg attachment. But very quickly, the Juno protein is just expelled. And that's part of why eggs don't end up with multiple uh, sperm cells attached to them. Um, but what this new protein Maya does is it basically replaces Juno in that binding complex and then collapses into the egg, which is what draws the sperm inside. So actually, wow. the egg is taking this active approach in terms of pulling in the sperm that it wants. And again, what's amazing about this study is that they didn't have to use a bunch of donor eggs. You know, it, it was much easier to do with the mechanism that they did to just look on these artificial eggs effectively for which ones were spinning around and which ones had bind. Very cool. And, and that is quite exciting because the there were a number of um, questions around why some eggs were just not being fertilized. This might be the answer to, to quite a large number of those failed um, fertilizations. Exactly. So you can easily see how this could start to be used to treat infertility now that we know about this protein. Uh, Shane, our third story has to do with superconductors and research out of University College Cork. It does. And I've been Googling how much oxygen the human lung uh, consumes. And it is a tricky problem, but it's about five to six mils per minute. So it's a lot. So <laughs> yes, to cork um, and to a problem that's been uh, on the go for 40 years, um, which is about superconductivity. And superconductivity is a property of some materials to conduct electricity without resistance. And they have to do that at very low temperatures uh, for them to be effective. And the temperature at which this superconductivity switches on is a direct material property. And in the 80s, 
we discovered a, a field of materials called copper oxide materials, and they showed higher superconductivity temperatures than the rest, because most of them are incredibly cold, like cryogenically cold. We really want to tap into this because there's a lot of like uh, potential from having a superconductor. One of the most famous ones is the Meissner effect, which is that a superconductor can repel magnetic fields. And so if you put a superconductor on top of a magnet, it will levitate. And that's the basis of these levitating trains that we hear about. And so to this problem, we discovered the materials in the 80s, but we didn't know why they were able to turn on their superconductivity at higher temperatures. And that's what this um, result from UCC and Oxford have, have gotten into. And they used microscopy. So they, they used um, a microscope, but looking at atomic level microscopy to figure it out. And they were able to visualize the strength of superconductivity as a function of the atomic arrangement. That's absolutely incredible. They were actually able to look at the individual bits of, of, of atoms and, and look at how the superconductivity was uh, related to the, the orientation of electrons uh, around an atom. So like, it is remarkable. It, I think it still blows my mind that you can see atoms in a microscope, but now to be able to actually look at uh, the, the, the function of these things under a microscope is, is truly mind-blowing. This, this is stuff that would just not have been possible only a few short years ago. Um, so yeah, exciting times in superconductivity. Yeah, and and I suppose you mentioned just one of the uses of superconductivity, but there are lots of different applications beyond you know maglev trains. This you know finding a way to get this sort of um, physics to happen at room temperature is it could be a huge game changer in lots of different fields. Absolutely. So one of the big challenges we have with climate at the moment is how do we how do we make a diverse and spread out electrical grid system work, right? Because you have huge amounts of loss when you transmit electrical power over large distances. So um, the new materials are going to be the way forward here. The science around wind and solar is, is very advanced, but the science around how we move electricity around really needs to be uh, investi- uh, invested in. And this is, this is exciting, this sort of work. Finally, uh, Jess, our last story has to do with learning. That's right, and specifically noise to aid learning. So this is a new review out by researchers at Edith Cowan University in Australia of over 100 studies. Um, And they're talking about not necessarily noisy neighbors, but noise in the electronic sense, right? So what's on a line when you take out the signal? So it can be unwanted or random um, bits of that signal. Uh, And basically, you know, you can think of it in terms of a noise machine, if you have one for sound or like static on an old TV, Um, And what these researchers have been looking at is what's called transcranial random noise stimulation. So it's basically, it's putting electrodes on your head um, so that a weak current can be passed through specific parts of the brain and then applying what's called white noise uh, to that. So, uh, yeah. So so basically creating sort of just random white noise in your brain by passing electricity through it. Yeah. So it's (laughs) in some ways you're like, why would you do that? Um, but there's a lot of evidence on the biochemical side that, you know, noise is very central to how our brains process uh, signals and pass through it. So um, researchers all over the world have been looking at can noise be used to actually improve learning and the kind of consolidation of electrical connections in the brain? Um, and the answer seems to be yes. You know, for example, if you're uh, doing some kind of a, a cognitive task 10 times under this noise stimulation, 
and then the electrodes are removed and you're asked to do the task again, you do it better than if you had just practiced it 10 times. Um, and it seems to rely on this uh, thing called stochastic resonance, where basically adding weak noise can actually improve how efficiently neurons fire. So it gets that signal that's underlying learning to actually pass through the brain better. Now, this uh, method is most helpful in cases where the signal is already not getting through properly. So things like treating neurological injuries and illnesses, if neurons are already firing fine, it doesn't make as big of a difference. So, you know, if you're just looking to do better on your exams, it's probably not going to be the method for you. <laughs> but medically, it's going to have huge applications, it looks like. The first time I heard of um, transcranial direct stimulation was um, research out of DARPA where it seemed to show that if you stimulated the brain of snipers while they were trying to improve their shooting, they um, they could have a significant and more, much more rapid improvement of, 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 of target accuracy if they were learning while they were having their brains zapped. And I thought, oh my God, where the hell are we in the world? <laughs> well, it's good to, to know that it can be used to improve other kinds of learning. Isn't as well. it? Isn't it though? Uh, Jessamine, before we go, I know you have something you want to let people know about. That's right. Uh, I have a show coming up in the Dublin Fringe next week, um, which is Bright Club Presents the Mothership. And it's basically a comedy variety show about the science of motherhood. Um, so it's going to be looking at, you know, this thing that affects, you know, most people, everyone has a mother or is a mother or knows a mother, um, looking at the <laughs> science side, the cultural side, and having a few laughs in there as well. So the shows are going to be running September 5th through 18th. And there's both evening shows as well as daytime shows where babes in arms are welcome. Well, well done in making it so relevant to everyone, Jasmine. Um, uh, looking forward to it. Bright Club shows are, are fantastic. Highly recommend it. Um, so that's Dublin Fridge. Bright Club presents The Motherland. Um, Shane Bergen from UCD and Jasmine Fairfield from Anyway Galway. Thanks very much. Now, every so often working on this programme, you come across a question so hotly debated that attempting to answer it can become a lifetime project for people in a particular field of research. And more often than not, these questions are ones that you and I didn't even realise were up for debate. In plant biology, the topic getting researchers all hot under the collar at the moment is whether or not plants can be intelligent. Our next guest is one of the many voices in this debate. Paco Calvo is Principal Investigator at the Mint Minimal Intelligence Lab at the University of Mercia. And he's also the author of a new book called Planta Sapiens, Unmasking Plant Intelligence. He joins me now. Welcome to the program, Paco. Tell me first a little bit about the book. Hey, thanks, Jonathan. Well, thanks for having me. Well, the book, as you said, is about plant intelligence, right? So just with a twist, because because if you are thinking of plant intelligence as covered from the perspective of plant biology, the twist comes with the approach we bring here, which is to approach the very study of plant intelligence, not from plant biology as such, but from the cognitive sciences. So I may say something akin to a plant psychology, understood scientifically. So you're applying the tools that we normally associate with neurology and cognition, understanding and animal intelligence, and then you're using these tests to apply them to plants. Absolutely. So precisely one of our points is that we need to customize those tools because the difference in between animal and plant behavior has to do, for example, with the type of substrate, whether they use neurons or not. Obviously, plants have no neurons or brains, so we cannot rely on the recording of the electrical activity of neurons, but we can rely on the recording of electrical activity of plant cells because plant cells also fire spikes of voltage, right? So the typical action potential that you know in a neuron, that also can be recorded in a plant cell. 
So we use the same tools, but applied, customized for the study of, 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 of plant uh, behavior. Take me um, through the, 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 the birth of plant neurobiology. It started around 2006, right? Where are we now at that? And, and what exactly is plant neurobiology? Right. Okay, good. That's, that's a, a thorny issue, okay? Um, at that time, actually, I was uh, working in, in neural network theory in some other fields of research in, within the cognitive neurosciences. And I came across this book that had just come out, uh, uh, Plant Communication, Neuronal Aspects of Plant Life, edited by Frantisic, Frantisic Baluska and colleagues, like became colleagues afterwards. At that time, I was just impressed with this book and I thought, oh my God, I, I need to find out about this, right? So that was the early stages. I catch this plane and flew to the, the place where they were meeting, discussing all these issues. And at that time, that very year, there was a very heated discussion as to the very name of the society in this first meeting that I joined. You could see the, the, the very society of plant neurobiology. It was split into like those defenders of the very label of plant neurobiology. Remember, I just said that plants have no neurons or brains. And those that were saying, hey, we need to change the label. This is not, it, it might be very sexy, but, but might not be that accurate. So let's make it easy for people to understand the sort of science that we're talking about, because as you say, the ideas are quite controversial. Maybe the best thing to do is to explain your French beans experiment and what it tells us. Hmm. Yeah, well, this is an intriguing experiment because we, we know that, I mean, for a long time, we know that vines or climbing plants, they somehow need to care about their surroundings, right? Because think of what a vine does. A vine is not devoting energy and resources to building a solid base. So they, they need to grow fast and latch onto something else, some other, a pole or a nearby tree or something that can use as a scaffolding to grow up there and do photosynthesis. So they, in, a, in a sense, they need to make sure they don't go astray. They need to make sure they can grow in a goal-directed manner, right? So here the working hypothesis was that if climbers, in this case French beans, are somehow controlling endogenously, controlling the way they grow so as to latch onto the support or the pole, uh, there must be some way to tell as opposed to simply growing and merely, you know, bumping onto the pole by, by mere chance, by, by luck, right? right. So, so we were time-lapsing uh, plants in these two cavings, right? We have, we have a caving in the growing chamber where we would put a pole nearby the, the bin and another control caving without a pole. And we uh, uh, hypothesized that, that there might be a difference that we should be able to, to, to tell in between a plant that has nothing to grow around and thereby there is no way in which they can grow in a goal-directed manner, but there is no target, and a plant that, there is, that has a target nearby and thereby can try to control the way they approach the, the target itself. Essentially what you're saying is you had two plants. One of those plants had a way of getting up and you were trying to figure out whether or not the plants that end up climbing these, these structures as, as runner beans do whether or not they were doing that by random, just reaching out and seeing what happened, or if they had some way of knowing that this was yeah. a good way to go to get up. Some yeah. sort of sensing an object in their environment and then choosing, which is the wrong word, but sort of choosing 
the direction to go to 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 get up to the sky, right? Yeah, definitely. That's that's the very idea. I mean, if you think about it, it's not that crazy after all, because we know that plants sense many different parameters, right? So they are they can sense you know changes in in, in humidity, in temperature, uh, light gradients, patterns, uh, chemicals. So all sorts of information is impinging on the sensory periphery of the plant. That that shouldn't be breaking news. We know that plants, of course, must hum somehow be able to sense their surroundings. Now, what we didn't know, and now we are confident, we have some understanding of it, is that plants, vines in this case, do have the means to control the way they grow towards the target. A different issue is whether... How- so, so you're saying in, in these time lapses, you, you could see the runner beans choosing, again, I use that word very yeah. uh, generously, choosing to go towards the direction of yeah. the, the the structure that would allow them to rise up and, and, yeah, and get there, there, Yeah, definitely. There, yeah, there are many different experiments uh, um, that have been carried out with vines. In some other experiments, in by other teams, they've, you know, they, they've been able to, to test whether some plants like um, were able to sniff out, you know, the, 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 the sugars or the potential that, that a host plant would have. Right, like for example, cuscuta, which is a parasitarian plant, right, that is not able to do photosynthesis. So they need to do fast and and, and try to latch onto a, a host so that they can suck up the nutrients. In this case, from a tomato plant, right. So if you put if you put a tomato plant rich in in, in sugars and wheat, say something which is less less appealing to the to the cuscuta, it will choose. It will grow towards the tomato plant and not towards the wheat, right. So we we do know that now. What we are doing now, remember we were talking about how we are able to customize these toolkits coming from the neuroscience or from the, you know, uh, the human and non-human animal studies. And, and we can combine time-lapse photography with electrophysiological recordings. So you can insert a, a set of electrodes into the stem of the plant and, and record electrical activity within the plant. And on top of that, you can see how that correlates to the type of information you obtain from the overt behavior as observed through through the clips, through the time-lapse footage. I don't want to get too um, bogged down in, in, in the measurement because the, the, the idea is is the, really the thing that grabbed me. And, and that is that you appear to be saying that there is some sort of conscious intent with these plants, mm-hmm. that they are making the decision to choose to behave in a particular way. And that, I think, is the, the biggest... Um, and most, I suppose, controversial point. Yeah. Monica Gagliano is another um, a person in this field who has claimed to do something rather extraordinary with pea plants. Can you tell me about that study and and your work trying to replicate it? Yeah, well, in this case, uh, uh, Monica Galeano, a few years ago, back in 2016, she did this experiment that, you know, at that time was really, you know, it made the headlines on, on pea plant uh, associative learning. So if you think of, of learning like in Pavlov's dog. Pavlov's dog. Yeah, yeah. Association. So you get a you get a sound and that will associate with food and then you, that's you it. play the that's sound it. and the dog sal- salivates, yeah. Precisely, that that very example. So, you know, in that case, you would have like the, the dog would be expecting the food to come after the bell because it, those two things have been associated in the past and thereby the dog has made the connection, right? So it's learned. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that so that was the, the the rationale of Monica's experiment. She thought, oh, if we pair something equivalent to the to the bell in this case, like a fan producing some airflow, so something that the pea plant wouldn't turn towards in a natural environment. So if you 
put some airflow, the plant wouldn't turn to, towards it. And then the food, in this case, blue light, for example, to do photosynthesis. So we know, of course, that plants would grow towards the blue light source. In this case, she was expecting the plant, if it happens to learn the association, to grow towards the airflow, expecting that the blue light would come next, right? What? So equivalent to the Polo's dog uh, rationale or the experimental design of, of, of the animal uh, experiment, right? And, and, the, and this experiment, she found, she found results that did suggest that these plants could learn that association, which of course is, is an extraordinary claim that's come under quite a bit of fire. You tried to replicate this particular study. How'd you get on? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, we've been trying to replicate it for the last two years and counting. And we have found nah. many, many issues with this experiment, I must say. So this is this is a very important lesson here because people tend to polarize the discussion. You know, when you say this is a controversial field, they think, oh, if Paco Calvo is defending plant intelligence, he will be defending any experiment trying to throw light upon the existence of plant intelligence. By no means. I'm not trying to demonstrate that plants are able to learn, or I'm not trying to demonstrate that, that the French bean is able to, to grow in a goal-directed manner towards the pole. What I'm trying is to find out whether or not, which is very different. Yeah. Then if we do science without falling prey of our own subjective biases or our prejudices or our preferences, then we will be doing better science. Now, what with that being said, what we found out in the last two years is that there are many, many, many flaws in this experiment, in the pea plant experiment. And by this, I don't mean to say that the working hypothesis is not on the right track, for example. So it might be the case that the experimental design that Monica Galeano used can be improved. It might be the case that this is not the best experimental design to throw light upon the issue. And it might still be the case that plants, after all, are able to learn by association. So the question might be, what sort of experimental design might be able to throw more conclusive light, regardless of whether the evidence ends up being negative or positive? See what I mean? So we are trying to find out whether the plants are able to learn, not to defend by default one position or the other. But um, there are a few people who seem convinced of this, and certainly your um, your study on the French beans seems very interesting uh, at the very uh, least. And we know so much about plants in the past decade, how they communicate with each other, how they can move resources around in, in, in a group, that they can warn each other that smell of, of grass being cut is a, a a warning signal to other grass, right? That, that we know so much about the really complicated communication systems of of animals. The the counter argument is these are just stimuli response things. These are they're, they're not any decision. It's just stimulus response. And giving plants intelligence is a is a crazy idea. Is what is what other people say. I'll give you an example of of someone who uh, who says that. Um, this is uh, a clip from an interview that we did with uh, David Robinson. Uh, David Robinson is a very um, well respected uh, plant scientist, and he feels uh, very strongly about this particular subject. He thinks the area of plant neurobiology is nonsense. So I, I want to play this clip for you, and then I want to to get your response. We've published several papers saying, which shows quite clearly that the human facilities of thinking, thought, which require a brain, just do not exist in plants. Now, what the, animal, what the plant neurobiology people, including Monica Galliano, the, the uh, anthropomorphists say, is that, well, it's a different form of intelligence. But there again, I say, 
They're changing the definitions mm. to fit their own way of thinking. Can I ask you, is this a big, um, fiery debate in, in plant well, biology actually, at the moment? Well, it's, it's been presented as that. Right. In fact, the plant neurobiologists, and I conclude Monica Galliano in that group, are a splitter group. I figure that of, of, the, of all trained plant biologists, there are only about 5% in the world who, are plant neuro, who uh, really believe in plant neurobiology. The, whole, the main line that the sort of hardcore plant scientists regarded as silly. So David Robinson says they don't have brains. You, you're, you're calling it intelligence, but then changing the definition. And only about 5% of plant biologists believe in plant neurobiology. Now, that last one I have to sort of disregard in a way because sometimes significant changes happen in science and it's just 5% of scientists who realize it first. But the other two, that you're changing the definition of intelligence to, to make this work, and, and that they don't have brains, they can't perform intelligence in the same way because of the very structure. Um, what do you make of those? Hmm. Well, at first, I, I've got to say I'm so grateful to you for bringing in this clip. I mean, it's, it's, it's fabulous. I mean, just for the record, I must say that, that I did uh, mention, for example, David Robinson, uh, the speaker we just heard, in the acknowledgments of my book, Plant Sapiens. So this is important because I am actually acknowledging their critical contribution to our work because science needs this critical attitude. So I don't think science works by saying, hey, you are the good guys or the bad guys. I think we all need this adversarial collaboration and, and, and in such a way that we can learn from each other, right? So, so I, I've learned a lot from, from what plant physiologists can teach me, which is a lot. And by the same token, I am still hoping that uh, plant physiologists uh, from an orthodox school might be able to learn some of mm, the lessons we are mm, trying to share with them. For one thing, first uh, lesson would be to say, look, we are not trying to anthropomorphize uh, plant behavior. So when I'm saying the French being is trying to latch onto the pole, the problem is when mm, someone wants to visualize it from a top-down perspective, as in, hey, intelligence is human intelligence by default. Any other form of intelligence is somehow trying to fit the type of mold we are providing, right? And I think that's precisely the, the, the root of the problem, that we need to take a bottom-up approach. Like, bottom-up, I mean, starting at the stump of the very tree of life. So, Forget about humans for a while. Let's just think about life in general. So any organism whatsoever, right? It doesn't even need to be a plant. It could be a bacteria, fungi, a slime mold, any, any form of life whatsoever in the tree of life. And then it's a fair question to ask, hey, what sort of behaviors are they capable of? What kind of things can they do, right? Yeah. So if the behaviors that they are able to exhibit are sufficiently sophisticated, are flexible enough, are to some extent anticipatory, so into the future, and as in the case of the French being, they are goal-directed, then if we have all these ingredients, this is the type of ingredients I spell out in, in the first part of my book, so th with those ingredients, you have serious reasons to say, hey, hold on a sec, maybe the behavior of these organisms is not just pre-programmed or wired into their genes uh, or just mere adaptations, right? So going back to the point about the definitions, 
what's the big issue about having to redefine our terms and our concepts? We have been doing that for decades and for centuries. Look, this is a great example. I, I Actually, I bring this example in the book, which is about the very disciplined plant physiology. So when in the 19th century, some people were doing plant physiology, physiologists would complain and would say, hey, there is only animal physiology. Physiology is animal or it's not physiology, right? Can you believe it? So can you imagine plant physiologists, orthodox plant physiologists nowadays complaining that you talk about other things and say, hey, this cannot be discussed in this way. Well, if that line of argument was applied to their own field, they wouldn't exist because plant physiology was banned from yeah. mainstream science a century ago. It, it it must be a, a difficult thing to be out on, on the fringe. Even just asking questions can get you into trouble. Um, but this book is a book that sort of lays out the argument that we should be asking these questions. Paco Calvo uh, is the name of the author. The, the book is called Plant as Sapiens, Unmasking Plant Intelligence. Good luck in your quest, Paco. Thanks for your time. Oh, thank you so much. Love to know what you made of that piece. And if you're buying it, that plants can be intelligent, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, particularly if you are a plant biologist. It's time now to look back at some of your comments from last week. Aidan McKelvey's off on holidays again. So um, it's me on my own. And uh, there were lots of comments that didn't make any sense or were insulting or too rude to put to air. But there was one um, email we got in, which was from uh, a guy called Don Devine from Waterford. He wrote a letter in. We asked for, uh, you know, asked you to review the podcast and and post those reviews. And I just thought this was really lovely. So uh, this is from Don. Don says, I'm a very long time fan of your show. Absolutely love that you're on podcast so I can always catch up. Your Sunday slot is impossible for me to catch, so I do rely on the podcast. This is my first time sending a review, but only because you asked so specifically this time. So I should ask for things more clearly by the sounds of it. I'm more arts than science, but your show makes every topic interesting and enjoyable. Absolutely love the episode on the extinction of the dinosaurs, but that's just one of the ones I listened to most recently. I think I could make the same comment on just about every show. Format is excellent. I love the short pieces at the beginning, and your format of a long listens is great for curious minds like mine. Your topics are are so eclectic that it's uh, a bit like getting lost in an old encyclopedia Britannica. I'm okay with that, uh, actually. I'm okay with that um, description. You never lose us in a difficult mindset. And one thing I particularly like is if a guest becomes a bit too complex, you regularly rephrase what they say in clear terms. Yes, that is one of my techniques. Uh, This keeps me right in touch with the topic. Very reassuring to know I can always rely on you to be the best of teachers. Oh my God, I'm, I'm tearing up here. Thanks for all the, the years of education and entertainment. Very best wishes with the show into the far future, I hope. Well, Don, that is an absolutely lovely letter and thank you so much uh, for writing it. And ordinarily, I'd feel guilty for asking people to write me letters of the review of the show. But actually, I'm so glad you got in touch. So Don, thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate um, everyone who listens and it's wonderful to hear stories from people from all walks of life, from all over the world who listen to the programme, enjoy the nonsense at, uh, at the beginning of the show and the deep dive interviews that we do on the show. Uh, so thanks very much for that, Don. I'm, I'm not going to go any further. I'm just going to leave it there. It was a lovely um, letter and I think it deserves a hallowed and, and uh, solo spot in our um, uh, review of your comments from last week. Thank you to series producer Aidan McKelvey, 
Aoife Breen was producing this week. Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday, including uh, an interview with a guy who went out to the desert after being summoned there by five billionaires to talk about how they should prepare for the end of the world. The conversation they had, which you'll hear the highlights of, is fascinating. That's next Tuesday on Future Proof, the podcast. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.